0: Let's get to our guest. We check in on the virus every day. And joining us right now is Dr. Kevin Tracy, President and CEO at Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. It's the research arm of Northwell Health, which is the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State. He's also a Professor of Molecular Medicine and Neurosurgery. He's on the phone in Manhasset. Uh, we're going to have a couple of minutes, Dr. Tracy, and then we'll come back and talk some more. But you know, just to hear the President talk about some of the inequities, um, and we've seen them laid bare, by the virus, um, how do you, what's your reaction to that in terms of what the president is trying to do here?
2: The, the virus has, has been uh, brutal to uh, those in lower income neighborhoods, multiple housing units, and to the elderly. And there's an enormous opportunity to double down in, in, in what has to be done to vaccinating those populations, as well as looking at new therapies that we're going to continue to need even after the vaccines have been, have been given out.
1: Dr. Tracy, we, we're, we're, we're seeing some conflicting news, right? We're seeing lockdowns and, and restrictions being, I shouldn't say lockdowns, but restrictions being lifted in certain parts of the country right now, California, New York, Well, at the same time, new strains are being discovered in, in multiple places. What's the right approach here for, for local states to take?
2: Uh, the, right, the right approach is to follow the, the, the masking of all individuals, maintaining social distancing and hand washing, and to focus on a coordinated deployment of the vaccine as soon as the supplies are available. That's the science-based approach.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, you know, I think we're getting back to that core, and certainly Dr. Fauci has been impressing that the importance of, Tim, we saw it certainly I feel like over the weekend or since uh, the new administration has come in, uh, you can almost see some relief. Uh, among Dr. Fauci, just being able to focus on the medicine, it the seems science. He's more relaxed. <laughs> he definitely <laughs> does. He definitely does. Um, and listen, the science kind of reveals all in terms of what we need to do.
1: Yeah, it, it really does. Um, doc, Dr. Tracy, we, we only have about 15 seconds left, uh, but give us an idea of what you want to focus on when we come back.
2: I, I'd like to talk briefly about the importance of investing in research to prevent, one, the complications of people who are going to continue to get sick even after the vaccine is available and two, being ready for the next pandemic.
1: Uh, Dr. Tracy, we, we we sort of teased that you want to we're going to talk about the uh, next pandemic. And it's surprising to me that we're already thinking about the next pandemic. We haven't even gotten through this one yet. Um, are we going to be better prepared, hopefully, for the next pandemic? And, and why are you convinced there? Well, when do you think the next one would be?
2: Thank you, Tim. And thank you, Carol. Thank you both for having me on. Sure. I don't I don't know when the next pandemic will come, but there will be another pandemic. And in fact, we will be better prepared if we learn from what we're going through now. So um, there's two, there's a couple of ways to think about this. Um, one way is to think of it as a Sputnik moment when Russia launched its first satellite. It, it, it terrorized. Um, military leaders in the U.S., and it terrorized civilians because it was unexpected and we were unprepared for, for a space race. But we, we as a country doubled down and led by an invest, major investments in science and research. We put a man on the moon before the decade was out, as, as JFK asked the country to do. We we it's because the country reacted in a cohesive and organized way to a, a perceived threat. We need to do the exact same thing now for the COVID response by investing more in, in federal dollars invested into research because it, this was not a surprise. Okay, this this was an expected event. Right. This,
0: well, and, and forgive me for jumping in because like someone tweeting at me and saying, listen, we've had the swine flu in '09, we had the Russian flu of the 70s, the Hong Kong flu of the late 60s. Um, you know, we've had flus along the way and we've had viruses that have been really difficult. I guess I mention it because I agree with you that the country has to focus on it, but the world really has to focus on it, right? If we're going to really get these under control, especially with the amount of flow and movement between countries um, and our economies depend on that, it really has to be a global effort.
2: I agree, Carol. A global effort and a global focus would be ideal, but we we may not be able to control the global focus, but we certainly have to double down on a U.S. focus. In in 2003, after the first SARS outbreak, I actually was uh, invited down to Washington on a very small panel, and we modeled what would happen if exactly a virus like COVID coming out of uh, China or Asia began to infect Americans. And the models we used... Uh, were more lethal than the current virus, which is not very lethal. The models we used projected 40% of the United States would have been, would have been dead by now. If mm. the, if, if, if the, so, so this was not a surprise. Right. And I was one of m- dozens of, of, of participants in reports recommending preparation for pandemics on the basis of national security, including stockpiling PPE, stockpiling antibiotics, stockpiling ventilators, and stockpiling the ventilators in schools and fire stations so they'd be readily accessible in case the hospital systems collapsed. So there was no surprise here. And the surprise is we weren't ready.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it wasn't surprising that there was a pandemic. It was a surprise how how unprepared we were for it. Um, What do you think should be done right now, thinking about this pandemic immediately in order to get us out of it?
2: I think we have to celebrate the victory of science the fact that we and double down on the investment in it, the fact that we're using vaccines today against a virus that none of us had heard of uh, 13 months ago right. is remarkable. It's, it's something to be incredibly proud of, and it's something to celebrate as a major, a major victory in the history of science, that we're using vaccines. Many vaccines, actually, have been developed for a virus that was unknown 13 months ago.
0: And a a reminder that Moderna has been working on this for a few years. This messenger RNA didn't just happen in the last 12, 13 months. Like, it's been coming, correct?
2: Carol, exactly right. Moderna's been working on it for a few years, but for 15 years before that, basic research funded by the federal government and universities and research institutes laid the groundwork for Moderna to be able to pick it up.
0: Right. You think about DARPA and the programs. Um, We'll continue this conversation another time, Kevin. So do come back. Dr. Kevin Tracy, President and CEO at Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, on the phone from Inhassant, New York.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio.
0: So, Tim, we're going to pull on a little bit of history here. We know that the 1920s roared after also going through uh, the country a health pandemic we remember that well we don't personally remember that but it's in the history books
1: it's in the history books and that's not all a lot happened in the 1920s and even 1921 that is eerily similar to what's going on today
0: which is exactly what uh, Bloomberg economics editor Peter Coy gets into he's writing about that for Bloomberg Business Week and wondering whether you know we can see the same outcome can we get another roaring 20s after the horrible year that was 2020 so Peter joining us on the phone in New Jersey along with Bloomberg Business editor Joel Weber he's on the access line in Brooklyn I mean this is great there are a lot of similarities Joel between now and the 1920s you do wonder does it play out the same way though
4: yeah that was sort of the been the chatter and we we put it to Peter and did a little bit of a historical analysis to kind of paint a picture of like you know could we have a repeat these <laughs> 20s yeah. you know be like those 20s and and Peter what, what did you what did you find what was your conclusion
3: probably not i mean it would be nice right uh... there are but let me give you the optimistic take first of all uh... there have been periods where productivity lagged and then suddenly jumped and what the reason is that you have some general purpose technologies in the case of the nineteen twenties it was the automobile the internal combustion engine which was used in cars and trucks and electricity which electrification of factories and homes both those things paid dividends literally for years, even though it took a while before the big payoff came. So who knows, maybe the the 2020s will be the decade that, uh, you know, biotechnology and digitization, computers, artificial intelligence and so on, will finally start paying off big dividends. You see some intriguing evidence. The very fact that so many of us are working from home now successfully is a reflection of the ability of uh... video conferencing cloud computing and so on it is incredibly uh... productive use of new technologies and then uh... again in medicine we have the very fact that these vaccines were concocted and just began to be distributed within a year is just incredible and that's based on some new technologies that will be used in other medicines and vaccines in the future. So that's the optimistic take. So I just want to stick on that for a minute before we turn to
4: the pessimism. <laughs> and, and we'll get to the pessimism. I also want to just bring us, like, rewind to 1921 and the inauguration. Can you tell yeah. us about what that was like? Because that the, the similarities are are yeah. pretty eerie sometimes.
3: Cold and windy day. <laughs> the uh, predecessor in that case woodrow wilson was not on stage although it was not because he had gone to florida it was because he'd had a serious stroke and really wasn't very well um the president warren g harding spoke of unity it was a time of high unemployment and the u.s had just gotten through a global pandemic so a lot of parallels it was a bit of a somber occasion and yet uh uh, inauspicious, and yet it set the stage for, as we know, uh, a takeoff It started start of that summer when we emerged from a recession, and the rest is history. Electrification, as I said, the automobile, radio, movies, on and on.
1: Right. Indoor plumbing, labor-saving yeah, appliances. Yeah. yeah, those are all huge. Okay, so you gave us the optimistic case, Peter. Give us the pessimistic one.
3: Well, the pessimistic one is that we are have been stuck for a while in called secular stagnation, which is a term that comes from the 1930s, has been repurposed for the more recent period, where we have uh, kind of low productivity growth. We have um, low interest rates. It seems as though there's an excess of savings over desired investment, um, and that's reflected in extremely low. We have negative uh, real interest rates, real meaning inflation adjusted, uh, out 10 years, uh, which tells you that there's just, People are pessimistic about the, the growth prospects for at least this decade, um, and we have low uh, emplo- growth in the labor force. We have slow improvement in the quality of the labor force measured by education, so a lot of the signs are pointing in the wrong direction.
4: Okay, so Peter, uh, you you said you know, and there there is something that Carol said at the top of this segment that I, I think is worth mentioning here. But I'm I'm curious what you learned as you worked on this story, and and maybe one of the things to touch on here is that you know the 1920s do have this um, halo, uh, if you will, yeah. but it wasn't a great decade for everyone, was it?
3: No. Well, no. Uh, prosperity rose on the whole, but there was increasing. Um, polarization the rich got richer and the poor got poorer in that case the poor farmers did very badly in the nineteen twenties and that was a time when the agricultural workforce was a much bigger share of the population than it is now so it really affected a lot of people Um, factory workers did well because manufacturing was on the rise Um, in contrast it was a tough period rural american general uh, a lot of immigrants had a tough time It was very, it was a women had just gotten the vote. Remember, that was the uh, amendment that uh, brought women's suffrage in 1920. Um, Blacks, in some ways, African Americans, uh, we had the explosion of creativity and uh, culture with the Harlem Renaissance and so on. But there's also a lot of discrimination against African Americans. Um, And there were race riots, there were lynchings, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally in Washington, D.C. There were some dark sides, and there was also a lot of anti-immigration sentiment. Uh, The 1924 Immigration Act was actually a role model for none other than Adolf Hitler, horrible, as that is to say. So, yeah, not all sweetness and light in the 1920s.
0: So okay, so what are the lessons to be learned here? Because as you say, you you know, and you point out isolationism that was yeah. happening there, and maybe right. that's something we can pull forward here yeah. in twenty twenty one.
3: Yeah, that 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 uh, Adam Twos, uh, the Columbia University historian, uh, talked to me about that. Uh, you know, the U.S. having uh, been engaged in World War One, but not having been nearly as affected as the Europeans by it, um, kind of just. Said a plague on both your houses. We, we don't want to be involved in Europe's quarrels. Just leave us alone. We have oceans on both sides of us. Uh, we'll be fine on our own. And did not want to join uh, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations and did not. And uh, basically, it was a strong isolationist streak, uh, you know, demanding that Europe uh, paid back their debts down to the penny, which created all kinds of problems. And it became clear with the Depression and the World War II that that was the wrong way to go. And we learned from that afterward with the creation of institutions like the United Nations, World Health Organization, International right. Monetary Fund, World Bank.
0: Well, and I, and I think there's something to be said about learning from the past. You often hear those in conversations with leaders that they go back and read books on other past leaders who've, who've dealt with some stresses to figure it out. I uh, hope, certainly hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol
3: Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
0: So, Tim, we know one of the hardest hit industries by the pandemic, anything to do with travel, and within that, Big time, hit really hard is the cruise industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, remember back to the early days of the pandemic and there were the reports of the cruise ships that were essentially stranded off the coast in certain areas because uh, they had COVID outbreaks on them.
0: It was really, really difficult. So at the year ahead, the Bloomberg event virtually we're holding. Um, I caught up with the Carnival CEO, uh, Arnold Donald, and we talked about a lot of things, including how they're managing through the pandemic and what cruising is going to look like in the future. Check it out.
5: It's been a tough time. It's a t- it's a very yeah. difficult time for travel and leisure, um, and obviously difficult time for crews. You know, we voluntarily paused way back in March of 2020, and here we are in January of 21, and we're still not sailing. We've had a few sailings um, over in Europe, but you know, very limited basis. So you know, to have a business with no revenue for such an extended period of time and a significant burn rate, because obviously um, we have to keep our ships operational. You can't set these ships up. They're not airplanes. You can't just put them in a hangar. Uh, you have to continue to operate them. And so it's been very challenging. On the other hand, um, the company's proven its resilience. Our people have been fantastic. Uh, we have raised over $19 billion of capital in the past few months, all virtually, nobody in an office, not our people, not the investors, not the bankers, not the lawyers. Um And so some extraordinary things have happened. Plus, we got 90,000 crew members, Carol, back home at a time where there were no flights. There were, you know, borders were closed, et cetera. So that was a major ordeal, not to mention in the early days, uh, 250,000 guests plus as well.
0: Hey, what I wanted to ask you, Arnold, because I feel like go back a year ago, you folks, Carnival, the cruise industry was seeing, I think, the depth of the magnitude, the seriousness of what this virus was about, right? You were seeing it. Certainly you had passengers on the ship. You had employees you had to deal with. I just feel like you guys got an earlier window into how serious this could be. Do you feel like that there's any early windows that you are seeing right now that maybe the rest of the world is not?
5: Yeah, I don't know if we really had an earlier window, but clearly we were impacted because um, when countries closed their borders, we had ships at sea because this was evolving. Nobody understood it. Um, people were shutting down and, and we had to get people home. So that was a, a major episode for us. Um, or excuse
0: And maybe that's episodes. what I mean. And, and, and maybe that's what I mean is that mm-hmm. you guys really felt the impact pretty quickly, yeah, pretty swiftly before a lot of other folks did and a lot of other industries did.
5: I think our return unfortunately is probably going to be slower than others um yeah. and uh, it's because we have so many if you take a cruise you go somewhere so everyone talks about cdc which of course is critically important uh in terms of having you know the confidence of cdc for us to sail but we have to go to destinations those destinations have to feel comfortable uh and we're not going to be able to start all at once we're going to have to stagger our start we'll start with a few ships at a time etc And so we'll be slower coming back, but we will come back. And depending when um, it's in the best interest of public health, you know, to sail uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, um, we're cautiously optimistic, hopeful that we could have nearly all the fleet back sailing by the end of the year. Um, But obviously hotels and schools and other places where there is um, congregation of people um, are going, are already happening. And so... You know, they're kind of in front of us in terms of being able to see when things are coming back to normal.
0: Right. And just recently, I think on Friday and then also Monday, you guys announced some extending some of your pauses on your departures in the United States. So do me a favor, Arnold, take me to, you know, your first U.S. departure post-COVID. What does it look like and when do you, you know, fingers crossed, when do you think it might be?
5: Yeah, well. Those are great answers I would love. Oh, great questions I'd love <laughs> to have the answers to. But the reality is, you know, what it's going to look like is, um, you know, obviously there's going to be enhanced protocols on board, um, health protocols, because in this time frame, even with the advent of vaccines, even with the acceleration of low cost, rapid, more accurate testing, even with the advancement of treatments, um, you know, COVID is still still out there and about and still impacting people and so we're going to have to have elevated protocols for a period of time physical
0: distancing what does that look it, yeah
5: what does that look like? yeah yeah and, and the good news is we've done it now in, in Italy and, and Germany for example and so uh, the guests for the guests they have a great experience but they are wearing masks you know there is an intention of physical distancing it looks like when you go to the grocery store wherever you go now, And there's a little spot on the floor that says, you know, stand six feet behind the person in front of you or something. But it'll still be a cruise. People will still be experiencing new places and new people and new destinations. All
0: right. That was uh, Carnival uh, CEO and President Arnold Donald speaking at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit. And just getting into kind of how do we open up this year? Do we open up this year? I mean, this is a company, Tim, that's raised $19 billion in the debt and equity market. So they've got a great cash cushion. But you're talking about no revenue.
1: No revenue, but perhaps pent-up demand. You know, we spoke to mm-hmm. Peter Coy at Bloomberg Business Week earlier about the Roaring Twenties, and in that piece, he talks about how Carnival has its biggest uh, planned boardings for in April for its biggest ship ever, 5,200 passengers. It's a massive ship. It's called the Mardi Gras. Right. And look, maybe there's going to be, I, I would imagine a lot of people are eager to get out there and go on vacation. And
0: that's what Arnold said, that, you know, he's got a lot of people, a lot of past customers that are emailing the company. And I know from doing kind of a deep dive in them and spending a little time on a ship, it's, these are people who go on multiple cruises. This becomes part of the way they vacation on a regular basis. So Get,
1: get that vaccine.
0: Get on the cruise, <laughs> I guess, right? Get that vaccine. Exactly. I'm
4: driving in my
2: car. i turn the radio.
3: How about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive.
4: Just drive, so
2: Just drive, baby.
0: So it's time for the drive to the close. And back with uh, Tim and me is Ryan Dietrich. He's Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial. $810 billion in assets under management. Uh, Ryan is with us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, nice to have you here. I'm going to go right to something that Tim and I are a little obsessed with, and so is uh, anybody on the Bloomberg. And it has to do with, Charlie Pellet just talked about Pitney Bowes. Uh, The stock is up 81% today. Um, You had, of course, the 400% rallying. GameStop. Um, Sarah Ponzak, our Bloomberg cross-asset reporter, talked earlier about BlueSphere. It's a penny stock and it's seen uh, a move to the upside of 451%. It feels like there's a lot of day traders or you know what we would have called day traders you know, years ago playing around on platforms and social media and really getting some momentum going. How do you look at it? Are you looking at this? How do you think about it?
6: Yeah, Carl, first off, thanks for having me back. But we are looking at it. I think it's impossible not to, right? You know, we took a look at the top 10 shorted stocks as a percent of float that sold short in the Russell 3000 not surprisingly, some of the names you just mentioned there, and they're up significantly this year. I mean, it's like these Reddit boards and things. It's it's Mm -hmm. truly, I hate to say this time is different, but it really seems like they're trying to find the most shorted stocks, and then they're saying, let's all buy it at once, and let's try to go after these hedge fund managers. And it's a really unique situation. You know, I don't want to say it's like 1999, although I'll be honest, I remember in '99 I was in college, I remember skipping theology class, going to the penny board stocks, trying to make a couple hundred bucks, too. So I I did this one time, too. It didn't end so well, um, but nonetheless, you know, I don't think it's like 99, because, again, we have earnings growth. Um, there is some optimism that's out there, but there's a major difference between now and then. But some pockets of too much optimism um, make us a little more cautious in the near term. And those examples of these amazing moves is probably a good one of the best ways to show some of the excitement we're seeing in stocks. Here. Well,
1: we think about the stock market as being efficient, right? The e- efficient
6: mm-hmm. market's
1: hypothesis, right? Right. That's what we think it is. But when I see moves like this, it makes me ask the question, wait a second, or Is this a, a sign of efficiency? I mean, what's the signal that it sends you about the market and the way that things are priced when you see moves like this?
6: Yeah, Tim, I think the truth is, if anyone's done this long enough, you know markets aren't always efficient, right? I mean, you like to think they are in longer term, they maybe get there, but in the near term, you can have some incredible moves. Hey, and, and it is just kind of the, the world we're living in. I mean, you, you look at today, I mean, you know, small caps once again are leading. Small caps have had a huge rally, you know, since, since really September, and they continue to keep doing pretty well. So it's like sometimes these things go a little bit further than what investors think. But then you take a look at things and you say something like financials, okay? Financials have literally gone nowhere. Where for 13 years. You look at you know the financial ETFs and things like that. Nowhere for 13 years. So yes, there are pockets of the stock market that have really gone up a lot. But overall, there's always some value in some places that aren't nearly as stretched. And we think, you know, by, when all is said and done, those might be some of the areas that do the best uh, when this year is all said and done.
0: Such as what specifically?
6: Yeah, well, the cyclical value. I'm sure you've had one or two guests mention those words before. And we're in that camp, too. You know, industrials, materials, financials, they haven't done as well. Now, lately, they've kind of... But if if
0: financials haven't gone anywhere in a decade, what makes you think that this is going to be the year that's going to be different?
6: Right. Well, we think for a couple different reasons. Look at the uh, remember the 210 yield curve. No one talks about it anymore. It's been steepening. One well, of the steepest level it's been in quite a while. The 10-year yield we think can continue to higher, maybe up to 175. When all is said and done, Carol, because you look at copper, some of those industrial metals, those tend to lead yields higher. Higher trending yields tend to help those financials. Now, we're not saying you'll go majorly overweight and put all your eggs in one basket in financials. But we are saying that's a group that really finally, like you said, can do well um, potentially here. But at the same time... No, I didn't say that. I I actually
0: questioned if you're saying that after a decade that financials have gone nowhere, what makes you really think that this is going to be a different year?
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, you're right. And again, I think it's just the yield's finally going to start going higher. Yeah, I think we think we potentially finally could start to see inflation. I get it. For 10 years, people have probably come on with you guys and said we're going to see inflation. But when you look at some of those manufacturing data points that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, like every single 34 out of 34 commodity inputs have seen higher month-over-month price increases. Uh, we're not saying massive inflation, but inflation is starting to creep in, and that can lead to higher rates, and that potentially can help financials uh, for the first time, like we said, and honestly about 10 years, maybe to continue to outperform and all is said and done.
1: Okay, I know you're also uh, liking tech, specifically semiconductors. What's appealing to you about that?
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, they're the ones that brought us to the party, right? I mean, you look at what happened here, and like Netflix last week, I know Netflix is not a semiconductor, but I want to say, you know, people realize, oh my goodness, there's a lot of earnings growth still coming here, and we think, you know, technology and communication services, which communication services having a really good day today, by the way, those are some of the areas that have had the most earnings growth and continue to, so we're kind of taking a barbell approach on one side, your growth, your, you know, your, your, um, your technology and communications, and the other side, the cyclical value names we just talked about. Everyone's, I came on with you guys all last year. We said we like growth over value. We've really drastically evened that up here at LPL Research, and we don't think you have to pick a favorite, so to speak. We're saying you know both of those areas can probably do pretty well and pass the baton back and forth, versus last year when it was pretty clear to us growth would do really well relative to value. We've kind of changed our tune a little bit there.
0: All right. Interesting. Uh, big tech coming out. Uh, what are you watching in terms of the earnings? And I know you look, you're a technical guy, but I do wonder what about the technicals on, as you said, tech, barbell, that's some of what you like. Are there any names within that big tech world that you think in particular are of interest?
6: Well, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to talk about individual equities. What I can say is this. You look at this earnings season, you know, almost 85% of companies have beat. It's unbelievable how strong. And I know the bar is low. That's the game that Wall Street plays. But still, this incredible earnings growth. And those small caps I just mentioned, yeah. small caps earnings are incredible. We're looking at this year maybe up over 30% higher uh, the overall earnings in small caps relative to where they were in 2019. That is amazing. And it's another reason that shows just how quickly our global. Or, I'm sorry, our domestic economy is coming back online as small caps tend to be more domestic by nature.
0: Yeah, but I will say that we have the Year Ahead event going on at Bloomberg and talking to, I talked to the Carnival CEO, uh, you know, we're talking to all kinds of CEOs to get a feel of what's going on. And it's really a second half story that maybe we start to feel like things get back to normal. So we will certainly keep an eye on that. Ryan, thank you so much. Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina.